0: Welcome to Energy 360, a podcast from the Energy and National Security Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we look at the Russian energy sector with Tatiana Matrova. Russian energy is an important player in the international oil and gas markets. We could think of no one better to help us understand the ins and outs of Russian energy than Tatiana. Tatiana is the director of the Sokovo Energy Center in Moscow. She writes regularly and comments on all aspects of Russian energy, including production, oil and gas exports, and policy development. Earlier this year, the Sokovo Center released its Outlook for Global Energy. My colleague, Nikos Safos, caught up with Tatiana to focus on the Outlook section that's devoted to Russian energy. Tatiana discusses how Russian energy has recently responded to changes in the global markets, to energy sanctions, and to lower oil prices. She and Nikos also discuss how Russia views the global discussion around climate change and how Russia can remain competitive while moving to decarbonize.
1: Thank you for being here, Tatiana. Let me uh, begin with you put out an outlook recently, the Global and Russia Energy Outlook 2019. I was wondering if you could share with us what are the main takeaways of the analysis that you did?
2: Well, thank you. Happy to be here. It was uh, our work which has taken three years. It was the longest period of preparation of the outlook because the situation globally was changing so fast. We've tried to take into account on the recent uh, technology developments and regulatory changes uh, in terms of energy transition promotion. And we We saw actually that uh, energy transition scenario means a very significant change of external conditions for Russia. In terms of energy exports, we see significant decline of all Russian energy exports in this scenario, and export revenues and uh, GDP growth rates are actually threatened. So the world is changing, and uh, the main takeaway for us was that uh, Russia should find the way to adapt uh, to this new situation. Actually, we made a sub-scenario looking at what could be done uh, in this brand new world for such a huge hydrocarbon producer as Russia is. And uh, finally, we found a way how Russia can actually benefit from this scenario. It requires quite strong political will on increasing domestic gas prices, on focus on uh, CO2 taxation domestically, huge modernization of the whole energy sector. But at the end of the day, that could allow Russia uh, to strengthen its positions not only in oil and gas, but also in renewables, in hydrogen, and uh, in energy efficiency, which is the, the lowest hanging fruit. For our country, and uh, actually uh, give uh, uh, some push for GDP growth rates.
1: Thank you. So, I wanted to maybe start. You, you talked about the the long time it took to put everything together because how rapidly things are changing. So maybe I wanted to look back over the last few years. So we've we've gone through a few years of dramatic changes in the energy market. Uh, a crash in oil prices and increased and fall again. Um, and also, of course, sanctions. Um, so I was wondering if you could walk us through, you know, how has the Russian hydrocarbon industry responded to this dual challenge?
2: Yeah, it came together, sanctions and lower oil prices, uh, this double warming, but uh, I think uh, actually sanctions didn't have an immediate operational effect uh, on the Russian energy sector performance. It was more about long-term investments in such frontiers as Arctic offshore, shale oil production, which are actually not necessarily so attractive with the new uh, new price normal um, in terms of uh, uh, oil prices, yeah, that was painful, uh, but Russia has found uh, quite uh, an interesting solution by simply devaluating rubble two times, which made all the domestic costs which are in rubble uh, much lower in dollar terms and which suddenly made all Russian oil, gas, coal extremely competitive on the global market, resulting actually in the historical records in coal exports, gas exports, exports. Quite high oil exports, by the way, and uh, again, historical records in Russian oil production beating the Soviet-time oil production. So uh, that was an immediate answer, obviously, at the expense of the uh, population and revenues. uh, But still, uh, that helped to support uh, the budget balanced. It helped to support the major uh, industries moving on. uh, And it was an immediate reaction. The longer-term reaction, of course, it... uh, Includes first of all import substitution, um, because uh, understanding how much uh, Russian energy industry is uh, dependent on the uh, foreign equipment, foreign technologies, Russian government decided to uh, starting to get rid of that. Uh, It's a difficult process, I would say. It's very difficult to develop new technologies and even more difficult to develop uh, production of this new equipment. Uh, A lot of this expertise is either lost from the Soviet time or never existed at all. So uh, putting together uh, these uh, task forces and bringing together suppliers of all parts for this equipment, that is a really difficult thing to do. In the first three, four years after 2014, I wouldn't say that we've seen a lot of uh, success. Right now, the last couple of years, maybe something starts to show up, especially if you have a strong project leader, like it happens in case of Novatec, uh, which leads uh, all these uh, import substitution for LNG production uh, technologies, like it happens in case of Gazprom Neft, which is definitely the leader for uh, shale oil production and for the offshore production, but it takes time. Creating a whole new industry from scratch, it's not easy at all. And the third component of this Russia's answer to the sanctions, uh, together with rubble devaluation and import replacement, it is uh, actually tax support from the state. So the state had to go for massive tax breaks, Um, It's also a reaction to the deterioration of the fields, uh, which is natural process. Uh, It is speeding up, obviously, and uh, the state had to reduce its part in the revenues from oil and gas production and exports. Um, Right now, in 2018, the share of the Oil, which was produced in Russia under under different tax breaks, tax exemptions, it has reached fifty one percent, which is extremely high, and it will have to increase further if we want to keep oil production levels at this uh, where they are today. So it is the biggest threat and challenge for the Russian government. Uh, what to choose? A really difficult choice: either to stay with the high volumes but then go for lower state revenues, uh, supporting different new frontier projects at the expense of the state, or to try to keep state revenues where they are, but then it will mean much lower production volumes and export volumes at the same time.
1: Let me ask you about one more component that Russia did in recent years, which was the engagement with OPEC. Oh, yeah. Because that was another... Uh, big move in terms of trying to protect the price of oil. Uh, Walk us through sort of the Russian thinking in engaging with OPEC and what has been accomplished in these few years.
2: That was really a very significant change in the whole Russian uh, foreign energy policy. For many years, Soviet Union and then Russia were just observers and frankly speaking, free riders in, all, in this whole process. So OPEC was cutting production, uh, Soviet Union was succeeding and Russia was succeeding then. Uh, but this time, uh, the situation was probably too dramatic. Uh, and. Um, In 2014, 2015, Russia tried to play alone, and the results were not inspiring at all. So 2016, there was this major change in the perception of the Russian government, the idea, okay, let's try to play together with OPEC. And the success was enormous, I would say. So driving prices up from lower 40s to 80s in a year and a half, that has delivered a lot of revenues and a lot of, uh, you know, credibility to this idea. Uh, And um, I think that worked as an emergency measure quite well. Uh, It helped to stabilize, basically, Russian economy in this very painful period of time. But then, as with any cartel agreement, actually, uh, you start to see more and more opportunistic behavior from all members, and it's more difficult to get uh, into the new deals, it's more difficult to keep, to keep everybody committed uh, to the agreement, especially when you see the new outsiders, the new free riders, U.S. increasing their production. So, um, The temptation to violate this deal is getting stronger. Each new round is requiring more discussion inside Russia. And I would say there are very different voices. Some of the companies are extremely critical about this idea. They Finally, they have to support it, but they do complain, and these complaints they are becoming stronger and stronger, uh, month after month. So I think, uh, speaking about a medium-term perspective, uh, until the end of this year and next beginning of the next year, I think there will be prolongation of these production cuts, but uh, it will uh, it will be more and more difficult to fix them and to keep uh, aligned with them. At the same time, it's not only about oil price, Uh, For Russia, this OPEC, uh, this arrangement and this relationship with OPEC and with Saudi Arabia in particular are extremely important from the geopolitical point of view. Uh, It improves Russian uh, position globally as an important global uh, player and it helps to really have a very strong influence in the Middle East, which is also important when you face an increasing isolation from the West.
1: I wanted to follow up on something you touched on, on U.S. production, and maybe give us a sense of how does the U.S. boom look from Moscow?
2: Oh, that's a painful question. I mean, that was a huge disappointment and the subject for many uh, discussions internally. I would say Russian energy experts and uh, different think tanks, research institutions and companies, they are following very closely what is happening in the US. They're well aware of all the processes and constraints and regulations and everything. And um, It is really a shock. Nobody expected that to happen. Uh, And U.S. are now regarded as the major uh, long-term competitor, uh, which is very dangerous, uh, which is growing so fast. Uh, Of course, each time that there are uh, news coming about declining number of the U.S. drilling rigs, Uh, uh, there are lots of voices saying, oh, finally, they failed. Finally, we've proven that these shale story is unsustainable, but then actually we can see that it still works. It's really much more sustainable than uh, Russia hoped. Uh, So um, both oil and LNG stories are really painful. Oil is much more uh, difficult because first of all, it is uh, challenging uh, global prices, which are so important for the Russian budget revenues from oil uh, are providing for approximately 45% of total Russian budget revenues. So it's extremely important. Gas is just 5%, far less influential. So the price of oil, which depends very much on the supply-demand balance and on how much U.S. is delivering to the global market, uh, this is the key question. Uh, LNG, US LNG, it's more the matter of psychological perception. I mean, US LNG being delivered to our core markets in Europe, this is really irritating. Uh, and people are complaining about it. But if you look at the real supply-demand balance in Europe, uh, US LNG is really a very small fraction of uh, total supplies. So physically, it's not that much affecting the market. But the, the very discussion, especially in Europe... Uh, talking about the future of the European gas imports. Of course, U.S. LNG is coming the first to be mentioned. And of course, it's not pleasant for the Russian uh, gas players, uh, though, as I said, there is no real physical competition at the moment. But uh, in the future, I suppose uh, it, it will increase. And um, U.S. is becoming a similar global oil and gas exporter as Russia is. So definitely we will face more and more conflicting points all over the world.
1: If uh, U.S. production is a shock and surprise in Russia, one of the things that was a shock and surprise here was uh, the Russian announcement on Paris. And so I was wondering if you could share the latest thinking on climate change, both from a rules and an international institution's perspective, but also stories out there in the world about the changing climatic conditions in the northern part of Russia and how those might impact energy infrastructure and long-term energy production?
2: So, frankly, it was a big shock for inside Russia as well. Uh, It came unexpected uh, because previously... I mean, for the last uh, three, five years, uh, Russian rhetorics concerning uh, climate change and Paris Agreement in particular was very negative. So we've signed the agreement, we refused to ratify it, and there was a lot of criticism on very top levels uh, concerning the very idea of anthropogenically driven climate change. It was uh, presented as, uh, um, you know, as a speculation specially designed by the West in order to put additional pressure on uh, Russia and on the other uh, oil-producing countries. Uh, so the attitude was, and frankly saying still is very skeptical. It's very difficult for people to uh, suddenly change their perception of the climate problem simply because uh, uh, the uh, authorities decided to join the agreement. I think it will take some, some time. Uh, internal discussion during the last month in Russia, it's, it's amazing. It's very hot. So the positions are polarizing and uh, it's something where people cannot find common language there is no uh, vision on how to adapt actually to this new decarbonizing world uh, there is no vision of what should russia's decarbonization strategy look look like how the energy sector in particular should fit into this uh, new framework so i think there is a lot of work to be done to be developed and a lot of you know mental work to just to accept this very idea that it's not only about profits and economic rationale, but there is another criteria on decision-making, which is about CO2 emissions. But at the same time, I would say that among the uh, industry, among the companies um, both private and state controlled or which are export oriented i can see during the last year a uh, very strong uh, interest to this whole topic of decarbonization, uh, offset mechanisms, uh, different low carbon technologies. So how we can make our exports greener, because I believe these companies start to see that it is really becoming a huge competitive advantage or disadvantage if not delivered. So uh, this is something yet to be developed. I believe that uh, actually Russia has lots of opportunities to feed into this uh, low carbon world. First of all, just with a simple energy efficiency, which is twice as high in the, as in the rest of the world. So there are low hanging fruits, we can uh, reduce primary energy consumption very significantly at quite low cost compared to what Europeans are doing. Uh, there is a potential for uh, renewables. So Russia has the biggest uh, resource uh, wind resources in the world. Uh, they are located in the Arctic, so probably not uh, so attractive. But with uh, uh, hydrogen production, green hydrogen with electrolysis or with DC transmission, theoretically, that could be actually added to the fuel mix. Uh, and hydrogen itself, it seems to be a very attractive story for, uh, for Russia, both green hydrogen from renewables and blue hydrogen from methane. Uh, Russia is looking at different technologies of methane reforming and methane uh, pyrolysis. Uh, so that could work. CCS, carbon capture and sequestration, lots of uh, uh, old oil and gas fields where you could actually store this uh, CO2 and uh, well, natural gas, uh, both pipeline and LNG, uh, definitely it has much lower carbon content than other fossil fuels so it could be a bridge for Russia, but it is requiring an absolutely different uh, framework, uh, different regulation and different targets inside the country, which are not there in place yet. So I keep fingers crossed that it will happen. We are trying to promote this work. But as I said, it's ongoing, extremely painful, and the resistance uh, from many stakeholders, it's enormously strong.
1: What is interesting, of course, is that the flip side to that is the opening up of the Arctic, where Russia has a very clear strategic vision for the Arctic. So I was wondering if you could share with us what that vision is and how does energy fit into that broader vision for the Arctic.
2: Yeah, Arctic is indeed becoming like the next big thing, uh, national super project. Um, I think initially it is driven by the geopolitical considerations. It's the longest frontier that Russia has, and uh, having strong presence in the Arctic for Russia it seems to be really a priority at the moment. But in order to establish this presence, you need to have some assets. Something should happen in the area, and in this respect, I believe that all the hydrocarbon production, first of all, natural gas, which is uh, Gazprom's production in uh, and then uh, in the future in her survey, all the projects that Novatec is carrying on in Yemal and Gidan, uh, oil production, uh, which is uh, provided by uh, Gazprom Neft, by Luke oil, Rosneft, so maybe some uh, coal production, though for me it's quite questionable from the economic point of view. But anyway, hydrocarbons, uh, this is the most obvious thing that Russia can do in Arctic. Uh, Of course, there is a question of environmental responsibility and to make it Clean and sustainable in this very fragile environment. Uh, but at the moment, I would say uh, this is the main motor of the regional development. And uh, for Russia, it is regarded as, a, as an anchor customer for the future uh, development of the Northern Sea Route, a new uh, transportation route, which uh, Russia would love to see as an alternative to Suez sometime in the future, not tomorrow, not even after tomorrow, but in the longer term. Um, and uh, It could uh, allow the country to establish also a massive shipbuilding industry, nuclear icebreakers. So, it has a lot of multiplicatory effects for the whole country. Uh, And also, it would allow Russia to uh, find a strong place in the international trade, which it doesn't have at the moment. So, as a transit uh, route uh, between Asia and Europe. uh, So, that's the idea. And um, I think uh, there are lots of work uh, and research ongoing in this respect, lots of negotiations with China, with uh, uh, Japan, uh, Korea, Singapore, Europeans. So um, it is still in the very early stage, I would say. But what I think could be really a very interesting part of this story, so Obviously, it will work only if it is economically feasible, if it is competitive compared to Suez, which it could be. It's a matter of how the whole project is designed. Uh, It's faster route than Suez, which is an advantage for uh, some transit products. But also it could become uh, the greenest route. So uh, Russia uh, is actually uh, planning to make uh, Arctic uh, low emission uh, route, uh, moving to LNG instead of uh, oil-based fuels and nuclear, which is our strength in the region, which could mean that basically moving goods uh, through the uh, Northern Sea transit corridor implies lower carbon footprint than the alternative route through Suez. So if Russia will decide, and I see some signs that it could happen, uh, if Russia will decide uh, to go for this low carbon Arctic development and green northern sea transit route, I think that could be a very, very interesting and impressive uh, step forward. And it would also mean that domestically Russia will uh, move faster in this decarbonization agenda.
1: You mentioned China now, and I wanted to get your thoughts on China, both as an Arctic partner, uh, but also there was a sense a few years ago that there was a real pivot happening in Russia's uh, export strategy in terms of trying to gain a bigger foothold in the Asian market, which has increasingly meant a greater foothold in the Chinese market. So I was wondering if you could share your thoughts, your thoughts both on China as an Arctic partner, but also a status update on Russia's thinking about capturing the Asian energy market.
2: Well, for Russia, China seems to be a natural partner in Arctic, though it's difficult to imagine China as an Arctic country. Nevertheless, it has very strong interest to the region. And uh, given all the sanctions and international isolation Russia is facing, China is probably one of the few countries which could really help, first of all, from the financial standpoint, but also partially from the technology point of view, uh, help Russia to develop these expertise. And more importantly, China is like the major potential uh, customer for this uh, transit route. Uh, Most of the goods are produced there. So I think it's quite natural that China is actively participating in the LNG projects. Uh, There are discussions about these joint shipping companies. We will see how it all works out, given the recent US sanctions. But uh, there is a mutual interest, and I think it will Uh, move forward. As for the overall Russia-Chinese energy cooperation, I would say that uh, it's expanding, so this year we will see commissioning of power of Siberia and actually Russian oil exports to China are increasing year after year. But at the same time, it's not as massive, as huge as Russia would expect like three, five years ago. So there were some hopes when all these sanctions were imposed that our Chinese friends, our Chinese partners will help us first financially, and then as off-takers of our The reality is that, yeah, China participates in some projects, but only uh, in those where it has a big equity share, like Cibor, like Novatex, Yamala, LNG. nothing else, actually. Power of Siberia, Gazprom had to build it on its own without any Chinese financing, because Gazprom didn't welcome China to step into the project itself, uh, into the equity share. Also... uh, I think there is a mutual uh, mistrust or lack of trust. So uh, Russia realized that being... 100% dependent on Chinese offtake is probably not the best idea. And so this desire to diversify exports, to get also Japanese and Korean companies and Indian companies involved, not to have China as an only counterparty left, uh, I think now it prevails. So therefore, the projects are moving ahead but at a quite low speed, I would say. The partnership is there, but I'm not sure whether it's really a strategic partnership.
1: Well, thank you, Tatiana. This has been a fascinating conversation. As always, we learn so much uh, when we hear your thoughts. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Many thanks, to Tatiana, for joining us to shed light on the outlook for a complicated Russia. There's a link in our bio to the outlook. And thanks for listening. Find Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and send us your thoughts or suggestions at csis.org or on Twitter at CSIS Energy.